Welcome to Wise at Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs, and your host. In this episode, I talk with Scott Shute. Scott Shute was the former VP of Global Customer Operations at LinkedIn, where he spent years leading in the field of customer support, services, and customer advocacy. Scott is a long-term meditator, and at the time of this interview, had just learned he is being promoted to be the head of mindfulness and compassion programs, a new position at LinkedIn. Scott is passionate about bringing wisdom to the workplace in a secular way. And now, my interview with Scott Shute. Hi, Scott. Hey, how's it going? Good, welcome. Thank you. I've been following your work at LinkedIn. You're a VP of customer operations there, mm-hmm. but you've been doing something besides that in the mindfulness That's true. world. And I'm curious how that all got started. Well, I grew up in a hotbed of meditation, and that's in north central Kansas. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Actually, no, it's not a hotbed at all of yeah. meditation. I grew up on a family farm in this little town that the nearest movie theater was an hour away. The nearest fast food was an hour away. And, you know, just some context, you know, I grew up in this little country church that was the center of our social life as well as our, our spiritual life. But when I was nine, 10, 11, I started asking all these questions that I didn't really like the answers to. And while I felt like I had this great connection to the universe and to the divine, the translation of what we were doing didn't make any sense to me. And fast forward a few years, my brother had been traveling. He'd been trying to make a living as a rock star traveling all over the U.S. And long story short, he had found something else. He had found a different spiritual path. And when he told my sisters and I about it, I just started weeping. And I just knew that it was my truth. I knew that I had come home. Mm. And for me, it wasn't just something I'd been looking for for a couple years as an early teenager, but felt like something that I'd been looking for or waiting for or looking deeply, you know, for lifetimes. And so part of that practice was a type of spiritual exercise, I guess you could say, kind of looks like a meditation. Mm. And that's how I got started personally. And that carried me through, you know, turbulent teenage years. It became a big part of me. It became something that I taught when I was in college. And I've taught ever since then. So when you first came to LinkedIn, yeah. was that something you kind of kept yourself or did yes. you start? Okay. <laughs> yes. I've been at LinkedIn for about six years. Mm-hmm. And for the first few years, I wasn't, let's say, out as a meditator. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized it's such a special place. It's such a place we talk about personal transformation, mm-hmm. the transformation of self, the transformation of the world. And I realized more and more that there was nothing in the way if I wanted to kind of be my full self. So one day I was having a conversation with Michael Susi, who leads our global wellness programs. And I I was asking him, I'm like, Michael, do we do anything with meditation here? And he was saying, well, yeah, we've done some stuff in the past. And then he sees the look on my face, he's like, wait a minute, do you do something? Could you do something? I'm like, yeah, kind of hesitantly, you know, Mm. like I wanted to, but I still have that hesitancy. It's like, yeah, I could do something. He said, you should totally do it. Like, You should lead something. And I was excited about it. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I went back to my desk and I did absolutely nothing for, you know, two or three months. Just, you know, kind of had that inner talk track Mm -hmm. about, is this even okay? Like I wanted to, but I was still scared about it. When I was a teenager and when I tried talking about 
meditation or mindfulness or these type of topics, it was a topic that got shut down very quickly. Mm-hmm. Shut down very quickly in my family, shut down very quickly with along my friends. It was just, you know, quote, weird, and you just didn't do that. So I had that natural hesitancy. Mm-hmm. And so even with this opening from Michael, I still was hesitant. So I scheduled a meeting with the head of the VP of HR, ostensibly about something else, you know, and kind of as I was leaving, my hand on the door question was, hey, Pat, I, I was thinking about leading this meditation class. Like, uh, what do you think about that? And she got really excited. Yeah, you should totally do it. And let me know how it goes. I'm thinking, oh, man, now I'm on the hook for it. I have to report back on how it went. So a few weeks later, I worked it all out and I started. I started leading my first meditation thing at work. And one guy showed up and he was probably just as terrified as I was because it's <laughs> just the two of us sitting yeah. staring at each other. But the second week, there were three people. And the third week, there were five people and just kind of grew and grew. And now... That's been happening for a few years. And over that time, it grew and grew to the place where people knew me as kind of the meditation exec. It's like, oh, you're the one that does that. And they'll say things like, I've never been, but I'm so glad you're doing it. Mm. Right? So it got some legs. Or things would happen where a group would have an offsite and they need, you know, some learning experience. So for a half an hour or an hour, they'd ask me to come in and do a session. And so over the course of a few years, I've personally probably now, you know, held a session or meditated with, I don't know, 2,000, 2,500 people. Mm -hmm. And about two years ago, I realized we had all of this cool stuff going on at the company that was beyond me, that had just happened organically. I noticed that our overall speaker series, I noticed that about three or four out of the 12 of the year were heavy in this topic. So I was thinking, wow, whoever's putting together this series must be into this because it was always about consciousness. We had someone who built a great online learning thing where you could go do a self-paced learning around mindfulness. You know, I kind of, again, got permission from the head of L&D to invite all of us together. And I became the executive sponsor and the leader, and we made it official of our mindfulness programs. And so since then, we've just built and built. Last year, we hosted a 30-day challenge, and 1,500 people out of about 10,000 signed up to do the challenge. And that gave us a nice base to do more things from there. So now we're doing things like weekend retreats. We just finished one today, Mm -hmm. you know, four hours of 50, 60 people getting together to experience five, six, seven different types of meditation practices. Yeah, we're literally coming from that right now. (laughs) In fact, Corey was uh, my guest. So now we're we're trading places. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Our pleasure. (laughs) Celebrity guest instructor. So it's grown to the point where it's a real thing thinking of other people in organizations that are not in charge of this kind of area, like you were not, what do you say to them about how to just get something going in an organization if this is a place that you feel could benefit the organization? Sure. Any lessons you've learned along the way? Definitely. There's a few things. One is do the thing that you're passionate about. Some people like to lead. Some people want to organize you know, find the thing that you are interested in and passionate about because it's sometimes hard. So it needs to be something that, you know, fits both of those. And then just start. What I discovered was that the biggest hurdle I had was myself, right? Was that inner talk track that had doubt. Mm -hmm. Because to this day, nobody's ever said, hey, what are you doing? Or, hey, why are we spending time on that? Everybody's been really supportive. The only thing that has held me back is me. And I know that that may not be true in every organization, 
but just starting, right? And getting out of our own way is really important. Around the same time, a couple years ago, I had a similar experience, which is in kind of the same vein. I was preparing to play guitar and sing at a worship service at the spiritual center that I go to. And I had agreed to it months in advance. And here it was, it was Saturday night at eight o'clock and I'm gonna perform the next morning, it's Sunday morning. And I'm performing a song that I wrote, which I can now not remember. <laughs> so I'm sitting down kind of at my desk playing guitar and trying to remember the song. And I started to get that talk track again, you know, and the talk track was going something like, wow, this is terrible. You know, what are people going to think about this? You know, this is not the caliber of work I want to put out there and just like on and on and on. And somewhere in the middle of there, I got this really clear intuition that said, stop. You know, and I literally stopped and I put my pick down on my desk and I raised my hands away from the guitar and I just kind of closed my eyes and listened. And when I closed my eyes, the, the intuition or the voice was basically said, we don't have time for your bullshit. Hmm. And that was it. Hmm. You know, and the message was, get out of the way, right? If you're going to serve, serve. And I got it very clearly. You know, so from that moment on that night, it's like, okay, I'm doing this thing. I'm going to perform this song. And so if I'm going to serve, who knows how it's going to turn out? Maybe it's going to be funny because I will forget everything right in the middle and I'll try to make it into a funny performance or maybe I'll figure it out. But if I'm going to serve, serve. And in the same way, I think this is what this work is about. Right? If you're passionate about something, if you want to do it, just do it. Right? Let go if you can of all that negative talk track, of all that fear of whatever it is, and just do it, just serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been fun to watch your progression of just showing up and doing it. And now, I just learned today, you also now have an official role. Yes, pretty exciting. Just this week, we announced that after Labor Day, I'll be full-time. My job will be around mindfulness and compassion. Uh -huh. So it's interesting. For the last Six years, I've led global customer operations, which has grown to a team which is now a thousand people. And you know, for the last couple of years, my boss has been asking me when we talk about it, he sees how much I light up when I talk about this topic. And so he said, well, do you want to do this full time? And over the past few years, I was saying, well, probably someday, you know, I'd love to do it full time. But two things. One is I want to make sure that there's a real role there, that we're not just making something up, that it has backing, right, from everyone. And two is I want to get the group in a great place so it feels good to walk away from it. You know, now my group is in this nice place where it's the right time for the team. But also the tipping point or the turning point for me was our CEO, Jeff, Jeff Wiener, was giving the commencement address at Wharton, uh, where he's an alumni. And his topic was around compassion, which he did a great job of. And the next you know, few times he's on TV, all the reporters want to talk about is compassion and leading compassionately. And I was thinking, okay, now's the time. Because internally, we have a lot of work to do to codify what does it mean to be compassionate? This is really the next stage in our journey of a mindfulness program is mindfulness shouldn't be something where you go, whatever, meditate with Scott for 20 minutes, and then you go back to your day job. It should be something that adds to our daily work, right? So now we're trying to codify, I would call it consciousness programs, but codify compassion. I'm kind of breaking it up into two pieces. One is, how do we become our best self, you know, of which mindfulness is a component of that? And when we're our best self, then we can have a chance to deliver compassion. Mm 
So I feel like I've just won the career lottery. <laughs> this is my new gig. Yeah. I get to talk about and think about and teach mindfulness and compassion in the workplace. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And I hope it inspires others to just kind of follow that if that's what they want to do. We're really excited to roll out our ambassador program at Wisdom Labs because of that exact thing. In other words, if you're not a teacher, you can still be an ambassador and a facilitator. So it's set up so you just book a conference room and push play and basically follow a lesson and a practice. And then how do we apply this in our workday? Right. But the nice thing about it is it can happen at any level of the organization. That's right. So... You could be at your level, at the top VP level, or it could be at any level. And yeah, hopefully that's how these things start to show up, where they want to happen, not necessarily from right. the top down. As you mentioned, you've had an added benefit with Jeff Weiner. I've heard him speak over the years about compassionate leadership and really taking on a role there. And also, he's been voted many times by employees as the best CEO. Is that right? Yeah, or, that's yeah, correct. Yeah. So... He's walking the talk. Yeah. And I suppose that was a risk for him, too, to really Absolutely. show up and say, compassion is the word we're going to use for That's this leadership. Right. That's right. Yeah, he's been on quite a journey, and I, I will let him tell his own story, but he's been on quite a journey of transformation. And so it's beautiful to watch him as a leader and see that it can be done in a very still intense way, but in a way that leaves people whole, in a way where we get a lot of stuff done at work and we're very competitive in the marketplace. Yeah, and I know that one of the programs you've been working on is compassionate customer service uh -huh. or customer experience. Yes. This could relate to a lot of different people who have any component of customer service, customer experience. So could you kind of outline some of the things yeah, that sure. you emphasize? Sure. Um, and we're starting with customer service because that's the group I've been running. So it's the easiest place that we could find. And also, it's one of those people-to-people -people jobs. Mm -hmm. If we codify where the end game is to deliver a compassionate customer experience, okay, what does that mean? And we've kind of broken it up into two main chunks, which is the first part is how to be your best self, right? And the second part is delivering compassion. Within how to be your best self, we first talk about being present, Right, because what we know, the research shows, is that being present is a twice as big a factor in happiness as the stuff that we actually do. Right? Also, we know that at work, if we're present, if we are in the moment, we're much more likely to be great at our jobs, whatever our jobs mm -hmm. are. But especially if you're dealing with another person, if it's a human-to-human -human interaction. So we start with being present. The second piece is really being self-aware. Right? Aware of our thoughts, aware of our emotions, aware of how things show up in our physical bodies. And we have some exercises around that. As an example, one of the things we do is for three minutes, you just jot down a note of all the thoughts that you're thinking about. Mm. Right? And then you kind of plot them onto, okay, was that positive or negative? Was I thinking about the past or the future? And what's shocking, what was shocking for me when I did it and shocking for other people is how many thoughts we have in three minutes. Our brains or our minds are just wild with thoughts. And then starting to be aware of, are those thoughts helpful to us or not helpful to us? Are we spending too much time in the future? Are we spending too much time in the past? Or are we really present? So that's just an example of something we're doing. And then the third piece of the Be Your Best, you could call it self-management. We're calling it Be Your Best. Right? This is some of the techniques that we've learned in the wisdom traditions that we're bringing in. Things like mindfulness or things like meditation, things like having an optimistic mindset. So one of my favorite 
quotes or studies that we talk about is one of the researchers from Harvard was working with people who were getting ready to go on stage to do karaoke. And she broke the group up into two and half of them, everyone knows that feeling of you're about to go on stage to <laughs> yeah. you know, sing karaoke in front of strangers, <laughs> right? You have those butterflies. Yeah. So half of them, she told them, all right, before you go on stage, just notice to yourself and say to yourself, I'm feeling anxious. And with the other group, you know, that were headed on stage, she says, just notice to yourself, think to yourself, I'm feeling excited. And then they used, I think, Super Nintendo or Nintendo's Super Karaoke that actually gave an objective score to how someone did, right? Were they on pace? Were they on pitch? The people who said that they were anxious, you know, scored in the 50s. The people who said they were excited scored in the 80s. And it's this type of very simple technique which leads itself to performance, right? Because all of the things that we do, again, I don't want this just to be because Scott's interested in it. I'm a business guy. I want there to be results. That's why we do it at work. But it's a combination of the person is going to feel better and be happier, and we're going to deliver a better experience, and that means that the company is going to have a better result. So it's this triangulation of these three things. Okay, so then we move into, once we've developed our best selves or spent time thinking about how do we be our best, then how do we help someone else? It's kind of like that old analogy of, you know, when you get on an airplane, they say if there's an emergency, the oxygen's going to drop down. Mm -hmm. And what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. You have to put on your own mask first before yep. you help someone else. Yep. Same thing. We have very little chance of helping someone else until we are full. So the first half is really about getting full and what does it mean, right? The second half around delivering compassion, we start with listening, so active listening. So we do some skills around how do you be an active listener, you know, and take some time to really step away from the normal way we listen into that deep practice of truly hearing what another person is trying to communicate. Then we move finally into the fifth level, which is compassion, right? And compassion... It can be a full-on, you know, loving-kindness meditation would be a long practice of something that we might do. But it also might be using practices that our service representatives already do today. One of our reps at one of the centers has a sticky note on her monitor that just says grandma. And when asked, like, hey, what's this note about that says grandma? She says, well, you know, I really love my grandma. And if grandma called in or if she was contacting me, I would respond in a certain way. I would give my best. And I want to show up like that with every customer. Mm. And so before she picks up the phone or before she responds by email, she just quietly thinks, all right, what would I do if grandma was on the other line? Mm. It's a flyby, right? And our idea is, you know, we'll do some of this in a workshop environment. We'll do some of it in a mobile app that they can learn on later. But over time, the goal is for it to be built in to what we do, built in to how managers coach built into how we do everything from rewards and recognition to performance management. We'll have these concepts built into it. So in your new role and knowing what I know about LinkedIn, yeah. a data-driven company, sure. how are you going to know that you're successful? Are you putting yourself on the hook or out of the gate? Or are you going to kind of <laughs> see as it comes along? How are you going to be gauging this? Sure. It's a great question. Let's start in the beginning, which is with the customer experience. That's mm -hmm. where we're starting. And my thesis, which I intend to prove out, is that employees will have a better sense of well-being, they'll have less stress, they'll have better relationships. I think they'll be more productive, 
But finally, I think they'll deliver a better customer experience. And all of those things we'll have data on. We're intending to do primary research along the way. And then we'll see. Right? All of this needs to be results-driven. Right? It's great that we're doing it. Honestly, we'll probably do it, even if it's just you know, people feel good. But I think it will be even more powerful because I'm pretty sure we're going to show that it has a wide host of benefits, as I just mentioned. One of the things also that I know we've both been involved in, but you had a hand in getting started, is what are the best practices that you've learned and noticing and looking around at other companies and people that are starting programs similarly and getting us all together with a mindful workplace group mm-hmm. so we could start to share best practices right. and start to learn from each other because no one's really got the full roadmap. Right, that's right. Also as a way of supporting each other because this is still the early days. Would you say it's still the it's early? It's absolutely still early days. Yeah, it's a good question. So when I kind of took on this executive sponsor or leader of our mindfulness programs. I mean, honestly, I had my own experiences, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I just did a Google search on, you know, mindfulness at work. And I found folks at Google and SAP and eBay and Intel. And I just started reaching out to them to pick their brains. I wanted to build a world-class program and I wanted to find out what was already out there. And then eventually we all got together And then that just getting together turned into a thing. And so now we have this group of us, this industry group that I help lead, where there's eight or 10 or 15, and it's growing, companies (laughs) Mm -hmm. of people like me who are trying to lead this type of work at their companies. And it's really primarily right now for two reasons. One is to build community, because that's great to have your tribe, you know, and to get support. And two is to share best practices. So this is one of those areas where even though some of us are competitors in the business place, we're openly sharing information because it's something we want to be kind of open sourced. What are some of the common threads? So in the beginning, it's just getting started. All of us just encourage whoever's there just to start, right? Because all of these things happen organically. Then what helps getting started is building your community. So one of the things we found at LinkedIn, and this happens at other companies too, is build champions. Right? So we're a global company. We have offices all over the world. And we're trying to have a champion in every office. Right? So then they can become the local expert, the local champion, the local advocate. And it starts to build your network so that you yourself don't have to do it. So building out people who are interested. And you'll find them when it happens organically. So for me, I started by leading a weekly meditation class. But I can't be there every week because I travel or I have meetings that I just can't get out of. So I have a team of people who are interested and excited, and when I can't be there, they lead it. So it's things like that. You have to grow your community. Getting executive sponsorship is important, but not critical, at least not in the beginning. It doesn't have to be tops down, and probably it won't be tops down, because most of the time it's, well, show that it works first, Mm -hmm. and then we'll fund it. It's it's like every other venture (laughs) in business, right? And so when there's a there there, then the senior directors, the VPs, the execs can get more interested in it because they see the benefits that are happening. We're starting now to, you know, really kind of codify what works for all of us and build that into a playbook, you know, and hopefully sometime in the next few months, we'll have that available for anybody at a company or any organization who raises their hand and says, I want to get started. Our intention is to have that available for you, both a little bit of a playbook to say, here's what you do, as well as a community to tap into. 
Yeah. What's so exciting about that is the reason why we've got started doing everything we're doing at Wisdom Labs is because we see that business has the most potential for positive change. It's the largest, it has the most influence, and when it starts to take root, and especially companies that are prominent and others look at for guidance, that's when it really starts to take off. It does feel to me like we're still at the very beginning of this, mm -hmm. if you can call it a movement. Yeah. And I think people are starting to call it a bit of a movement here. But the possibility of the businesses becoming more wise, becoming more compassionate, becoming more mindful, right. one person at a time, That's right. one department at a group, and then rolling out through the old stakeholder network is massive influence. And we're even seeing it starting to show up in how people design product, for an example, for some of the technology companies. Right. Where is compassion showing up in the product? But the idea of this sparking a movement and making change through business is really exciting. Yeah, it's really fun to watch. I'm happy to be part of it. So what about that part of building in compassion, if you will, or mindfulness into product? Uh -huh. For example, Facebook has a team, mm -hmm. a compassion team, right. that works full-time on building compassion mm -hmm. into the product. Are there some of those things afoot now for you at LinkedIn? I'd say it's very early days in some ways. A few years ago, Jeff Wiener, our CEO, took the reins of product because he wanted to get closer and kind of wanted to find our way a little bit. And in that moment, we started to see a shift which has only accelerated. And the shift was first, let's build one product. Let's act as one company, not a whole bunch of companies, right? And then the second evolution of that is, let's make sure that we're building products that are incredibly valuable for our customers. So instead of talking about how we introduced some feature that moved the needle on engagement or moved the needle on you know, growth or whatever our internally focused metrics were, we want to have metrics and products that provide real value and metrics that demonstrate the value of that to our customers. So I think we're already building in the ethos of compassion, right? Because I define a compassionate customer experience as having a deep understanding of what the customer is trying to do with us, coupled with a desire and ability to help them, right? Very similar to the normal definition of compassion. But it starts with this deep understanding and then ability to help them. When we're really trying to build product that adds value instead of just adds revenue, the revenue will come if we add value, of course. But that alone has compassion at its root. So that gives us a nice platform for now what's interesting, just even in the last few weeks as I'm out there, you know, this announcement came out that I'm going to be a full-time, you know, compassion and mindfulness guy. Now I have people in the product teams coming to me saying, great, I'm the product manager of XYZ product. I'd love to talk to you about how we integrate it into what we're doing. And then they'll spout off two or three ideas that are already farther down the road. So I think just the fact that we're talking about it, just the fact that we've created a culture where this is a thing, mm -hmm. that it's a thing that we're going to invest in, it's a thing we're going to say it's important, is already changing minds. It's already getting people thinking about it. So I'd say still early days, but I'm super excited to see what we can do when we have a truly conscious approach to it. Yeah, I think that is really exciting because it's seeing the direct effect, not only how the business transforms, but how the actual end product, which in the case of LinkedIn reaches so many people, it shows up there and mm -hmm. affects so many people so quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's the overall hope that I feel with, especially working with companies that reach a lot of people, that this starts to move in an exponential way. And right. I think it will. I think it will. Yeah. You know, the hope is that 
if you have the successful companies like Salesforce and Google and LinkedIn talking about compassion, talking about consciousness, talking about mindfulness openly, then what we hear from smaller companies or less well-known companies is, you know, folks who are proponents go to their leadership team and say things like, hey, here's what Google's doing. Here's what LinkedIn is doing. And that has an impact. So we truly can be leaders in this space for others to follow. Yeah. You know, uh, we've talked about all the good stuff that comes with it. <laughs> we should give a little bit of a conversation around what are some of the issues that you yeah. see have come up or roadblocks or, you know, challenges. challenges that, sure. Yeah. Honestly, I'll go back to the biggest challenge has been me, right? And just getting out of my own way. There really hasn't been much stopping us. Let me challenge that for a minute, okay. because you have Jeff Weiner as a CEO. It's true. Let's imagine somebody that's working in yeah. a financial services company, maybe in a location that's yeah. not on the West Coast. No, you're right. Can you can you put yourself in their shoes and imagine what they might be? Um... Absolutely. In fact, I've had the exact conversation. I met someone at a conference, and she was all excited to go back to her workplace and start a weekly thing, you know, start a mindfulness group, a meditation group. And she did. You know, after going to one of these conferences, she got all jazzed up. She went back, she started it. And then she was getting notes from her leadership team about, hey, what are you doing? Like, should we be doing this? Really not that excited about it. And they didn't all the way say no and shut it down, but they certainly put up some, you know, some barriers. And so for her, she had to make the choice of, okay, is this a place that I want to power through and try to make that difference from the inside out? Or is this a signal that maybe this is not the place for me? And that's a very real, you know, inner dialogue that she's having and a very real place for her to be is to make that choice. So I, I think that would be a common experience for a lot of people where maybe they have some support here and there, but there's a good number of people, maybe even the most powerful people at the company who are just not into it or worse, maybe would like to shut it down. So I think that's a real thing that happens. And... I think that it's a thing that we continue to test, right? We make assumptions about even if it's one person that, you know, that's going to push back, is it just one person's view or is that the prevailing attitude? That's where I say, for me personally, I want us to kind of push through that and test it a bit. Yeah. And having watched this in companies for the last five years or so, in the beginning, it was really difficult and that's softened up. And again, we're based on the West Coast, so I don't want to just put that caveat out there. But what I can see is actually it's starting to really be democratized. So for those people that are thinking of moving in this direction, it's a safer time than it ever has been, that's if true. you will. That's true. And there's more momentum. Most of that is because the science is there to back it up. Yeah, that's true. And also a couple other things that we're seeing, and I probably see this too, is that stress is at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. People are needing something to counteract stress, worry, and anxiety in the workplace. And then the second factor is that millennials, which is the largest group in the workforce at the moment and will be for the next five years or so, are demanding something to understand these soft skills that will help them in the future. That's true. Those skills that can't be taken away by an algorithm or AI, right. the softer skills around emotional awareness or have self-awareness and focus and attention, That's these are right. really key skills that millennials are asking for. That's true. There are a few things in there. We see with our own data, with our LinkedIn data, that these soft skills, these interpersonal skills are the most in-demand skills. 
It's the biggest gap, in other words, of skills that are needed for jobs, but skills that employees don't have at the level that employers want them to. So that's huge. Also, back to your other point about this is the time, we're seeing so much science come out now about the benefits of mindfulness, the benefits of some of these practices, that's kind of hard to refute. And so most HR departments in the world are trying to figure out how to build a healthier, happier employee, right? So we have gyms, we have fitness programs, they're talking about mental health. And in these discussions about mental health, mindfulness is one of those tools that comes to mind as here's a tool that is now scientifically proven to work. It's kind of gotten over the some of the stigma that it's had over the past 50 years. It's not just, you know, gurus in orange robes, uh, but it's now something that CEOs do, presidents do, sports people, athletes do. It's becoming more mainstream. So all those factors together are making this a great time for us to be talking about it. Scott, I really appreciate this conversation. Thanks for taking the time to come in. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces. To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, team, and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world, and as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. Thanks for listening.